Would you open your Bibles with me to the book of Ephesians? We're going to spend most of our time in Ephesians chapter 2, sometime in 1 Peter as well. For those of you that have been with us in this new year, we've been digging in um, to God's idea of family with the goal and with the intention that we're going to step into what family looks like from his perspective as far as what it means to be a father and mother, what it means to be uh, a child that honors your father and mother, what it means to be single and love what God is doing in your life, what it means to be um, a part of his family. But we've laid a foundation before we talk about what it means for you to parent your kids or what it means for you to be a spouse to your loved one. Before we dig into any of that, we've been laying a foundation of what it means to have a father. Of God as father, we've talked about the, even the mothering nature of God. We've talked about what it means to fully believe that we have the right to be called the children of God. As it says in John 1, to all of those that believed on his name, he gave the right to be called the children of God. That's a huge thing. It's a huge thing to realize that we have been made sons and daughters, that we've been made co-heirs with Jesus, as the Bible says. That's an amazing thought. So we understand, and, I, and I've been thankful that God has revealed through his word what it's like to have a father and what, what a real father looks like. Because whether or not you consider your dad or your mom good parents, he is so much better. Our heavenly father is so much better. And uh, if you have gaps in your, whole, your own soul, gaps in your own life, places that weren't filled by a father, places that weren't filled by a mother, places that weren't filled by people that loved you as they should, then thank God he is the one that fills those gaps. He's the one that heals those places. He's the one that shows us what it looks like. I shared with you not too long ago what my father said. My dad said, you know, son, I didn't have a a father that really was there for me, that really wanted to talk to me, really wanted to spend much time. But I learned how to be a dad. I'm, he said, I'm learning how to be a dad from my heavenly father. Whatever, whatever you consider yourself to be, whether it's a father, a mother, or a husband, a wife, a child, a, a friend, we learn what that looks like, not by looking around us. Although there's good examples, there's good people to, to imitate and to, and to say, I can take some tips from them. But our greatest example is looking at our Father. Our greatest example is looking how Jesus related to God, how he related to his disciples, how he related to the people around him. Our greatest example is looking at perfection and not saying that's unattainable, but looking at perfection and saying he has shared that, that with me. He's made me a part of that. He's brought me into that family. Tonight, this morning, I want to talk a little bit about the household of God. And what it means to be part of the household of God. I mean, it's not a phrase we throw around a lot. We talk about the family of God. But the household of God is very much the same thing as saying the family of God in many ways. Many people, when they get born again, they are discovering what God is like as a father. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to discover what a real good father looks like, as we sang earlier. Some people... They'll serve and, and they'll live and they'll, they'll be part of a church body and they begin to really embrace the idea that I'm a child of God and he's my father and I, I, I know that my relationship with him is good. But we have to understand that when your relationship with your father 
is perfected. As that's perfected, so is your relationship with the rest of the household. When we bring people, we tell people about Jesus, we say, come on, I mean, that Jesus has made a way for us to be reunited with our Father God, that, that Jesus has made a way for us to be called sons and daughters of the King. We tell people about this, we, we, we embrace the concept that we are now children of God, but sometimes we forget that means I didn't just get a father, I got brothers and sisters. And if, you, if you've read your New Testament, if you've read your Bible, you understand that that's a big deal to God. More than we probably realize because as you look through the scripture, there is a love that we have for everybody. There is a love that we have for God, but there is a great love that we should have for one another. Jesus did not say, they will know you're my disciples by your love and stop. That's where we often stop, right? They'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. We stopped there, but he didn't say that, did he? He said, they will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. John lays the case out in 1 John very strongly, very clearly. He says this, if anyone says that he knows God but does not love his brother, he lies. In fact, John lays it out like this, that a lack of love is the hate. Is hate. You know, we, we think of hate as like, I am actively plotting against you. That's what hate looks like. Like, I, I'm seeking to ruin your life. I'm thinking of ways to bring you down. But, but the biblical description of hate is not that you're paying so much attention to them because you just can't stand them. I'm sure that does look like hate. But the biblical description of hate is a lack of love. So when we say you hate your brother, that doesn't mean you're trying to ruin their life just means there's no love there for them. And the scripture tells us that's incompatible with your relationship with the Father. If you claim to have a relationship with God, and yet there's no love for your brothers and sisters, your relationship with God is, is not as real as it looks. And I don't say that so that we go around exposing one another, because that wouldn't be love either, would it? But I say that because that may be the canary in the mind for you. If you're one of those people that says, I have great times with the Lord. Oh, I'm intimate with God. I am so annoyed with people, though. In fact, I'm more annoyed with people when I come out of the presence of God. When I come out of the presence of God and I have to deal with people. Oh, it's the hardest thing. I wish it could just be me and God and none of you. Well, I don't know who you've been hanging out with. But it's not God. Because people that spend time with God come out looking like him, come out feeling like him, come out thinking what he thinks. And let me tell you, God is love. And the one who abides in him abides in love. That's just the truth. Jesus showed us that. Now, there were times, come on, guys, love does not always mean that you think everything, uh, that everything that everybody does smells like roses and lollipops. It, love is not always thinking that somebody is perfect. It's not always thinking that everything they do is wonderful. Love is authentic. It's real. There were times where the Bible says, and I, one of my favorite things that it says Jesus did, not favorite for the reasons you think it's my favorite, but I just find it interesting that there are times in the scripture where it says Jesus, after they said something particularly stupid, Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. <laughs> and then he says things like, how long do I have to be with you? And yet his disciples said, he loved us to the end. 
Maybe our definition of love needs to be tweaked a bit. The greatest proof of his love is not that he thought everything they did was rosy. The greatest proof of his love was that he never quit loving them. It was constant. It was steady. It was a love that that caused growth. It was a love that caused them to love one another. It was a love that, that disciplined when discipline was necessary, corrected when correction was necessary. It was a love that was real. It was a love that never faded. It was a love that was not diminished by their actions. And he loved them to the end. Don't you love that scripture? Those that were his own, he loved. And he loved them to the end. To the end, to the greatest and final and last degree, he loved them. That's a beautiful thought. I want you to read this with me in Ephesians chapter 2. I don't know everybody in the room today. And even those that we think we know, sometimes we don't know what's going on in their life. But what I've discovered is that in every church congregation, in every audience, in every time we've ever even had 15 people around a campfire, you find out that someone feels distant when you thought they felt close. You find out that people feel separated, that certainly I'm sure it's a lie of the enemy, but it's sometimes a result of our own ignorance that we don't realize how distant someone feels. The truth of it, as we're about to read, is that Jesus came that we would be brought near to God, reconciled to God. That word reconciliation is so important. As we look at the cross, I think of it this way, and I, I realize that this is, you know, to the Romans, a cross was just a, an efficient means of execution, but to us, it was so much more. Maybe not even efficient, maybe sadistic, but to us, it was so much more. To us, it was love. To us, it meant that Jesus became that curse for us by by hanging on that tree for us. But I look at the cross and I see two beams. I see one that's vertical and one that's horizontal. When you look at that vertical beam, I think of the reconciliation between God and man. That Jesus, by bearing our sin, by bearing our reproach, by bearing our guilt, by bearing the wrath that was due to us, made reconciliation between God and man. And that beam, to me, symbolizes a bridge. But that other beam that goes across, I think of that as well. Because there's a beam that goes crossways, and as much as the cross reconciled us with God, the scripture is very clear that the cross reconciled us with one another. See, if Jesus bore our sin and our division, we were divided from God because of sin, right? We were divided and separated from him because of sin. Well, the truth is we're separated from one another because of sin. And that same cross that reconciled us to God can reconcile us to one another. In Ephesians chapter 2, I've I've been teasing it long enough. Let's actually read it. He says in verse 11, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
So see, our separation from God also separated us from the commonwealth of Israel, also separated us from the people of covenant. And then he goes on and he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, formerly is important. See, whether or not you feel distant this morning, Jesus died so that you would not be distant, but that you would be brought near to God, that you'd be brought near to him. So your feeling of distance does not have to stay. You don't have to feel distant. And I hope that if you do, that you'll reach out. I hope somebody will reach out to you and extend to you the grace and the love of God that is so freely given to us. But I want you to know, Jesus died so that that distance would be abolished. That distance would be annihilated. He died so that you who were far off would be brought near by the blood of Christ. In verse 14, it says this. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. You see, this chapter is not just talking about us being made one with God, even though that certainly is part of it. Through him, and that's the biggest part, through him, we were made one with Christ. We're made, as, as he prayed in John 17, that he would abide in us, that we would abide in him, that the Father would abide in us, we'd abide in the Father, that we would all be in unity. But he also says that all of them would be one. And here he says this, he is our peace who made both groups. When he's talking about both groups, he's not saying God's group and our group. He's not saying the Trinity and us. He's saying both groups, the Gentiles and the people of God, the chosen people, God's people in Israel, both of these groups being made into one. And as much as he says it here, you guys know that he really emphasizes the point. In this book, in the book of Ephesians, in Colossians, he says things like, you know, now in Christ we're being renewed. We're being renewed to the image of the one who created us, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew. No distinction between uh, uh, barbarian and Scythian or slave and free, but Christ is all and Christ is in all. Now, I've talked to you before, so I don't want to repeat myself too much, but I love reading about the Scythians. I have my Herodotus' uh, histories, and I love reading about these weirdos, the Scythians, who are just like super barbarians, just extra barbarian, barbarian heavy. It talks about how they would, I mean, now, understand Herodotus might have exaggerated, but it talks about how they'd use their enemy's skulls as a nice mug, decorative mug. You put some jewels in it, it serves a purpose. Talks about how uh, the, some of the things they ate, and I won't get into that because you got to have lunch after this. But can imagine going to church? The Jews and the Greeks already feel so separate. The Jews consider themselves religiously superior, even genealogically superior to everyone. The Greeks consider themselves intellectually superior. And now you are one. There's no distinction. Eat together, pray together, worship together. That's hard enough, but please don't bring the barbarians into this. Don't bring the Scythians into this. Can you imagine in a, in a culture where the slaves and the freemen had different rights? In fact, a slave did not have the rights of a Roman citizen. A slave was a different class altogether. Can you imagine that both of you received Jesus and you end up coming to church and a slave might be your pastor? You might have to submit yourself to a slave. 
All of a sudden, there's this equality that nobody's used to. But the scripture doesn't say, let's try this out. Let's just socially experiment. It says that this is happening because we're being renewed. Here, this is happening because of the blood of Jesus. And the cross of Christ has broken down the walls. See, if we're just going to treat it like we should try harder to get along, we'll fail over and over again. But if we recognize that there's a supernatural work, that the more we realize who we are in Christ, the less we see distinctions amongst us. You know the kind of person the Bible tells us to reject? It's not the smelly guy. It's not the, it's not the weirdo. It's not the freak. The person we're supposed to reject, the scripture says, is a factious man. What does that mean? Someone who causes factions. Ironic that the only guy that's supposed to be kind of excluded from the group is the guy that's making his own little groups. Now, with the ultimate goal that that man himself would be reconciled. But it says, watch out for these guys. Watch out for the guys that go around dividing the church and, and, and having only cliques over here and, and setting one against another. Watch out for those people because that is contrary to the message and the purpose of Christ. He goes on and he says this. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself, in Jesus, he might make the two into one new man. He might make two totally diametrically opposed groups into one man. Not just one group, but one person. Isn't that awesome? And then it says this, and he might, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. So everything that made us enemies with God has been put to death. Everything that made us enemies with one another has been put to death. Anytime you try to resurrect it, it's an insult to the Christ, cross of Christ. Whatever you give yourself the right to be angry about, You'll take yourself up on it someday. If you think you have the right to hate, if you think you have the right to, to, to have enemies within the church, within your own body, if you think you have the right to stay angry, believe me, you will take yourself up on it. You'll find an excuse. You'll say, I have a righteous cause to be angry. I have a righteous cause to be bitter. But if you give yourself no place and you give the enemy no foothold in your life. And you say, I will not let the sun go down on my anger. I will not let a root of bitterness spring up and by it many be defiled. I will not give the enemy a foothold in my life, in my house, or this church. Because to do so is an insult to Jesus, as an insult to his cross, and is denying the very grace that works in us. He says this, he put to death the enmity. And he came, and he preached peace. Preached peace. <laughs> he preached peace to those who were far away, and peace to those who were near. Don't you love that? The same message was preached to both: to those that were far off, to those that were near. You think about the ones that were near; they needed the same message that we needed. Those that were so close, they felt that they were so righteous. They felt that they'd kept the law. They still needed Jesus to die. Those that were so far, pagan, idolatrous, 
perverted people, they needed the same message. Boy, this helps me. This should help all of us because we all came from different backgrounds. Some of you were raised in a very, very spiritual Christian family where you kind of kept the rules, you told the line, and some of you were, you know, just kind of were snatched out of hell itself. And either way, I've said this before, but let's say it again. Jesus had to die the same death for all of us. He couldn't have died an easy death for me and a hard death for you. He had to do the same thing because all of our sin brought the same wage. Whether it be the sin of pride or the sin of sexual perversion, both of them sent Jesus to the cross. And here, he preached peace to those that were near. He preached peace to those that were far away. And it says in verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Now listen to this, because we're going to go on, and, and it's very easy to read this chapter and just think about me and God. Very easy to read this chapter and just think, I'm reconciled to God. As well you should. But when I read this chapter, I see those big phrases like, Fellow citizens with the saints. Apparently it's important that we see ourselves as equals, that we see ourselves as part of one another, that we don't get to just have access to God by ourselves. Now listen, if you are by yourself, go into the throne room of God, absolutely. But we don't just get to say, me and Jesus, we're an island. It doesn't exist. It's not, it's not the way he operates. When we accepted him as father, we accepted each other as brothers and sisters. The, the hardest thing about that is that it's very easy to accept him as father because he's perfect, right? Now, he may not seem perfect to you at first, but he's better than your idea of perfect. He's better than your, your best ideas. He is, the, he, is, uh, he is infinitely better. He's infinitely perfect. But... With one another, we don't have the illusion of perfection. I, I can say I'm in love with Jesus because Jesus, you know, is the ideal, is the ideal person. <laughs> Jesus has never done a thing wrong. So being in love with Jesus is not that hard. But if I say I'm in love with Jesus and I'm not in love with his body, I lie. We've used this point before, so bear with me. But I can't say I love you. I just hate your body. Like, if I could just have your head on a platter, you'd be lovely. <laughs> That's a gruesome thought, isn't it? <laughs> oh, I can't say I love you, but uh, can we just hang out and, and not, your, not your spouse because I hate them? And if somebody had said that to me, I love you, but I can't stand your wife, I'd say, we're not going to spend any more time together. This is the end of this relationship until we can fix this because you don't just get to love me and hate my wife. I used to work at a Christian bookstore and it became in vogue a period of time. I remember there were several books along this line written that said things like, I love Jesus, but I can't stand the church. I love Jesus, but I, I hate, I don't like Christians. 
And it's kind of a cool thing. Like, <laughs> we're being real. We're being authentic. <laughs> I hate when people's breath stinks and I have to shake their hand. I hate shaking hands. But uh, authentically what? What are you being authentic to? Your own, your own selfishness? Are you being authentic to your own pride? Are you being authentic to the way you used to be? Or are you being authentic to Christ? It became popular because then you could give it to your unsaved friends and say, see, it's okay, we're not all like that. But we betray Christ when we betray one another. I got to fight for the people I don't even think are right sometimes. <laughs> I don't have to say they're right in everything they do, but I'll still stand by them. And this is the thing about being brothers and sisters. And you know this because you have siblings. No matter what they do, you still show up at Christmas or Thanksgiving. Now, maybe I've said that too quickly. <laughs> Some of you have not done that. But most of you, there's a lot of stuff that can happen, and, and your family ties are still there. They may be strained. They may be a little bit messed up, but they're still there. You don't forget that they exist. You don't say this is a new season of my life. Who, who's my brother? Who are my, who's my mother? But those that do the will of God. You still have family members and you still remember them. But the, the bond that binds us together through the blood of Jesus is so much deeper than the bond that binds us together through the blood of our father and mother. You can forget your brothers and sisters. You can move away and, and, and say, it. you can disown them. You could take a new last name. You can do whatever you want. But you can't disown the body of Christ without disowning Christ himself. That's tough. But I found that my greatest growth in Jesus was when his people tested me and I tested them. My greatest growth in Christ when Christ was most formed in me was, when in, was in those times where I wanted to say, forget you, I'm gone. And we stuck it out, and we talked it out, and we loved when we didn't feel like loving, and we fought for peace when we didn't feel like peace was a popular thing. Then Christ was formed in me, because then in my weakness, he was strong. He goes on and he says this, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. That word fellow, you may not know this, but fellowship does not mean sandwiches and soup after church. Fellowship in the New Testament spoke of partnership, oneness. Like in the book of Acts, when they were devoted to fellowship, doesn't mean they were devoted to chatting. It does say they broke bread. They spent time together. But when it says they were devoted to fellowship, it was the idea that they were together in this, that what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. It was a partnership. We are fellow citizens. We are partners in this. We are one in this. I don't get to be a lonely citizen. I don't get to be a special citizen. I don't get to be a citizen with my own visa that you don't have. We are fellow citizens with the saints. Now, if we viewed each other as saints, which means holy, spotless, blameless, righteous, we're not saints by our our actions were saints by the blood of Jesus because not one person, whether it be Mother Teresa or Billy Graham or anybody else, not one person qualifies for sainthood on their own merits. Right. We're all flawed. We're all broken. We're all sinful without Jesus. 
By the blood of Jesus, we've been brought into his righteousness. We've been given his righteousness. We've been given his holiness. So we are called saints. We are fellow citizens with the saints. We are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, to whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. There are no single stone houses. You want to try it tonight? Take a brick and sleep on the street with a brick on your head and see how comfortable you are. You're not going to be comfortable. There's no such thing as a house made of one little stone. We're all part of that. So our life, our purpose, our existence is incomplete without each other. You know, Peter says that very clearly when he talks about the living stones being built together. He says, we are living stones being built together into a holy dwelling place where holy priests offer sacrifices made acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Now, here's the thing that bugs me about that. I would like to believe that as long as I love God and I do things for him and through him, that he says, well done, good and faithful servant. But my sacrifice, my offerings to God are not offered in the street. They're offered in the house. Now, that's not this building. That can be anywhere in Lloydminster, anywhere in Canada, anywhere in the world. It's not about a physical building. It's about a spiritual building. So our offerings gain context within the greater picture of a house where we're all stones in it. We're all the stones that build the house. We're all the priests that offer sacrifices. And we're all the sacrifices. This analogy has us all through it. And we're all part of one another. You know, the scripture talks about when you bite and devour one another. You, you, you yourselves are consumed. Talks about when we hurt one another. He says a man doesn't hurt his own body. We are members of one another. We have to rid ourselves of the notion that we have the right to do this by ourselves. When we accepted the Father, we accepted the household of God because we became part of the household of God. I'm going to quote some scripture at you without you turning to it because I want to get to the next part quickly. We've taken a lot of time. But I want to remind you of some places in scriptures, and these may sound familiar, with, familiar to you. But do you remember when the scripture says this? It says, be good to all people, do good to all people, but especially those of the household of faith. You know, we know we're supposed to love, love everybody, Right? But the scripture is pretty clear that there is a great love that we're meant to have for one another. In the book of Acts, they weren't just feeding the poor all around Jerusalem, even though they did. Their greatest priority was making sure there were no needy among them. And this was not a result of them coming up with a strategy just by their best ideas. The scripture tells us that when Peter and John were beaten and threatened, they came back and they came to a prayer meeting of the church. This was the, one of the first times they had been truly threatened since Pentecost that if they kept preaching in the name of Jesus, they would be killed. So what did they do? They came back to their gathering of 
those of like precious faith. They came back to their own company, the scripture says, and they prayed. What did they pray? They asked God for boldness. They asked that God would do signs and wonders and mighty deeds amongst them through the name of his servant, Jesus Christ. They talked about what we just sang about the, the nations raging, the Gentiles raging. God's answer to their prayer was to fill them once again with the same Holy Spirit that they were filled with in the day of Pentecost. It says once again they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And it says great grace was on them all. The grace of God and the Spirit of God go hand in hand. What was the evidence of this filling of the Holy Spirit and this great grace of God? It says this, great grace was on them all for not one of them had a need. For not one of them considered anything was his own, but shared with each other. You so often we think the result of that prayer. Now the result of that prayer, the scripture tells us signs and wonders did take place. Miracles happened. They were filled once again with boldness, right? Because the Holy Spirit is a spirit of boldness. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses. We know that. But the great example that's used when Luke writes the book of Acts, great grace was was on them all for not one of them considered anything was his own. It doesn't say for. There were some super cool miracles happening in the streets. It doesn't say for. Great grace was upon them all. For some bad dudes came to Jesus. Even though all of that is true, the evidence he uses is that now they said, we're part of one another. Not one of these things that I own is just mine. The evidence of the Spirit filling them up again. The evidence of the great grace on them was that they saw themselves for what they were, members of one another. I believe God wants us to take care of the poor no matter who they are. That the sandwich you offer to someone is not tied to a string that says, if you receive Jesus. Right? Love is love. You give because you give. God gave to us before we did a thing for him. Right? But the scripture is very clear that as much as we're supposed to do good to all, we are supposed to take special care of the household of faith. I remember reading in 1 Timothy when I was a kid, Paul said, so that you will know how to conduct yourself in the household of God. I thought that meant don't run in the church, right? Don't jump on the chairs. You should know how to behave in the house of God. But he doesn't say the house of God. He says the house, even, and this isn't even the house of God. We know that, right? But he says the household of God. The three other times in that letter he uses the word household, he's talking about people's families, how they take care of their own family. He says it to the overseers. He says, if you can't take care of your own family, how can you take care of God's family? He says, if a, and he's talking about spiritually shepherding them. He says, if, he says, if a man doesn't work to provide for his family, he's no better off than a heathen. He's no better off than an unbeliever. That's a rough thing to say. So when he talks about household, he's not talking about a place or a structure or even an organization. He's talking about people. How do we behave ourselves in the household of God? How do we see ourselves in the household of God? You know, the book of Hebrews says, let the love of the brethren continue. 
We talked about 1 John. You know, 1 John is that book of love. It talks about love all the time. But watch, read it again, and see how many times it says, love your brother, hate your brother. It's primarily talking about our love for one another. James says, if your brother needs something, and you have it, and you speak a blessing over him, be warm and be filled. He said, the love of God's not in you. You hate your brother. Why? Because you spoke a blessing you didn't mean. You had what he needed. Now, he doesn't say some stranger or somebody, you know, out there in the middle of nowhere. He says a brother. So there is special care put on our own household of faith. And that's not talking about the people that attend the word church. That's talking about God's family. Now, we talk about this. We're all God's children because God created us. But the scripture is clear. We are not all part of God's household. Jesus brought us into the household of God. To all who believed on his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. I want to read you something as we wrap this up in 1 Peter. In chapter 1. 1 Peter, um, I'd say in three different places, speaks of this brotherly love. In fact, in one place he says, be brotherly to one another. What does that even mean to you? Be brotherly to one another. To some of you, it just means beat the snot out of each other. (laughs) But uh, now understand this, that in this biblical language, often uh, the male form is used as a neutral, all right? So when it says be brotherly, it doesn't mean don't be sisterly, all right? So brothers and sisters. So anytime I use the word brethren, I'm, I'm, you know, let's, let's, let's picture that as it should be, brothers and sisters in Christ. If I say be brotherly, be sisterly too, although sisterly is not used near as often. <laughs> but it's the same thing. It's a family love. In fact, the word is philadelphos, a love of a family for one another. Be brotherly to one another. Be brothers and sisters to one another. You know, it's one thing to be brothers and sisters and say that's who we are. It's another thing to live out the life of brothers and sisters. Ask yourself this. Self-test. In this group, don't look around. (laughs) But in this group, are there people that because of Maybe your last name, maybe similarities in where you came from or what you like, you consider to be a little bit closer in the family than others. That's natural, that's human. But see, the thing about this is that the spirit within us brings us past our own humanity, brings us into a place where we participate in his grace, in his nature. And I want you to consider this, as much love as you have for the people that share your last name, You should have the same love for those that you barely know, but you know are part of the family of God. As much love as you have for people that share your background, you should have for people that you just don't have any cultural touchstones for. The greatest thing to happen to me in my ministry life was that my first church was in Loon Lake where nobody dressed like me, nobody liked the same music as me, and I learned what it was like to be part of a family that looked different. And those Bible studies on Thursday nights on the reserve, 
You learn what it's like to eat with people, enjoy the food, and suddenly realize your family is so much deeper than you thought it could be. I got friends who have really cool churches. Cool by the world standards. They're cool people. But sometimes I say to them, like they have their little small groups. We all, I love, we got home groups. I love home groups, small groups. Some of them, I look at them, they send pictures, they put it on Instagram, and I tease them and I say, guys, you all have the same haircut. (laughs) (laughs) You're all wearing the same clothes. (laughs) You're all about the same age. And I think it's wonderful that they found that unity in the spirit, but I think it'd be good for them to find somebody who has a different haircut, (laughs) comes from a different background, some different age groups in there, because that's the beauty of the body of Christ. That's the greatest part about the body of Christ. So when you go out to lunch today, or you go home and you invite someone to your house today, think about that. That as easy as it is to start a conversation with someone who loves the same sport as you, somebody who loves the same music as you, some of you, somebody who's vacationed in the same place you have, somebody who works in the same field, that has nothing wrong with that. But I dare you to put some weight on the cross, put some weight on the brotherhood of Christ and find out that there's an even deeper bond. Because you know those surface bonds that we have, they go away. You grow up. Not many of you are hanging out with your high school friends. Some of you are. I saw somebody from school the other day at the dentist's office. We had five minutes of things to talk about and that was kind of that. You had to find something new. Why? Because the things you once had so in common go away. But the blood of Jesus is so much stronger. And I want to read this to you, and this is where we're going to find ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 1. It's been talking about the fact that we address God as our Father and that we were not redeemed with perishable things but we were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus. He says in verse 22, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. You know, the, the, the King James says an unfeigned love. Sincere actually literally meant unhypocritical. Hypocr- the word hypocritical, uh, the, the Greek word that's used here is, is a word that means not waxy. Because there was the idea of hypocrisy, the idea of something fake was that you'd seal the cracks in in shattered or flawed pottery with wax and you'd paint over it and you could sell it in the marketplace. But if someone were to hold it up to the light, they'd see the cracks for what they were. He says, don't let your love be hypocritical. Don't let it be feigned. Don't let it be fake. Purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently fervently love one another from the heart or from the core, from the center of your being. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. You know that word fervently? I find it to be one that, that uh, uh, we, we might have different definitions. That the one I've looked up says intensely, constantly, and earnestly. 
That a fervent love is not passing. A fervent love is not surface. A fervent love is not shaky or wavering. Fervent love is constant. It's intense. It's, it's real. Now I want to ask you something. He said, he talked about a love that's unfeigned. It's not made up. So how, how do I do that? Because let's say, let's just use this example. Tonight, this morning, you heard this message and you say, I want to do that. I want to love my brothers and sisters like I've been loved. I, I want to live that out. How do you do that? Because you might think, well, maybe I should just act like I love them. First thing to do is act like I love them. And I believe you're right. You know, Jesus wrote the the church in Ephesus and said, you've lost your first love. Therefore, repent. Go back and do the deeds you did at first. So part of the love is doing what's loving, right? But you might still say, but it feels fake. I don't feel that for them. I'm doing it, but I don't feel it. Notice this. He does not say you can make this love happen. What is, what is your part in this verse? Before they fervently love one another, from that first verse we read, you have in obedience purified your soul for a sincere love of the brethren. Which means your first thing is not to make that love happen. Your first thing is to make sure your heart, your soul, your mind is positioned in such a way, is purified. You've made room so that God can fill you with that love. The Bible says the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's how you get it. We read a few weeks ago how it says, if you fall in love with the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in you. You only have so much space in your heart. It's time that we start making room for that love. That love is going to be inconvenient. It's going to, be, it's going to bug you at times. It's going to mess up your schedule. It's going to mess up your life a little bit, but it's going to be good. You make time for people you love. You go the extra step for people you love. In fact, when Paul wrote the Thessalonians, he said, I observed, I heard about your labor of love. That word labor means work you don't want to do. Work I don't want to do comes from the love of God in me. Then I want to do the things I didn't want to do. Purify your souls. For a sincere love of the brethren. That love comes from God. He wants to fill you with that love. And if that weren't completely clear to you, then let's look at the last thing we read. He said, fervently love one another from the heart. For, here's how, here's why. You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. I can love because I've been born again. I can love because there's been a seed planted in me that bears the fruit of love. He's saying to you, don't be discouraged, friends. Don't be downhearted and say, I try to love these people, but I hate them. I try to love these people, but they bug me. I try to love these people, but I'm annoyed. He says this, don't forget who you are. You've been born again. And the seed that's been planted in you is imperishable incorruptible, which means it doesn't matter what they do. They can't change the word of God planted in you. It doesn't matter what you do. You can't change the word of God planted in you. And if you let that word grow in you and you make room in your own souls for it, Paul said to 
church in Corinth, he said, you're not restrained by us. You're restrained by your own affections. Therefore, I urge you, as I do, I would to children. He says, open wide your heart to us. Our hearts are wide open to you. Open wide your heart to us. Did you know you, you may ask God every day of your life, give me a love for these people, but if you don't open your heart to the idea of it, it'll never come. Open your heart to the idea. Open your heart. Make room in your heart. Open wide your heart. And you know, I've said this before, but we'll say it again. Too often, we've thought we were guarding our hearts by closing our hearts. Because we were hurt, because we were damaged, because we were abused, because church people just acted like regular people. So what do we do? In the name of guarding our hearts, we closed our hearts. But we lose what we're supposed to be guarding our hearts from. You're not guarding your heart from attack. You're guarding it from being closed. Because the enemy is not there to rip your heart out. His greatest goal is to get you to close it up. So that you can't love out and you can't receive love in. To starve you. To lay siege to your heart. So nothing goes in and nothing comes out. When you say guard your heart with all diligence, what's the rest of the verse? For out of it flows the wellsprings of life. I'm supposed to guard the flow out of my heart. And if my heart is so walled up, nothing can flow in or out, I've done a poor job of guarding it. If my heart's not open to people, guys, keeping your heart open to people hurts. But he's the shepherd and guardian of our souls. Open up your heart wide to Jesus and to his body. Now I want you to know that that doesn't mean you have to be a perpetual doormat. I believe we lay our life down for one another. I believe we're servants, but I believe that you serve him first. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, there is a, a scripture which says that Jesus, he was with the people and, and he listened to them, but there's one scripture that says, but he did not entrust himself to them. There's just some people that you don't just entrust yourself to just to anybody, but you can love anybody. You can be loved by anybody. You can open your heart to it. I couldn't hear God's call to be a pastor until I opened my heart to the idea. I know because I had my heart closed to the idea for quite some time. I uh, was so used to being single that I could not, I, I could not hear what God was saying about my future wife until I opened my heart to the idea that she might be around the corner. You have to open your heart and embrace and and allow God to purify your soul. And I believe that means he's going to change the things you love. He's going to change the way you love. Say, Lord, purify my soul. Spend time in his word. Spend time in prayer. Spend time in his presence. You'll find you begin to like what he likes. If if your time with him in prayer through the word and with other believers, because time with other believers is time with the Lord. Right? Do we believe that? Should be. If that time outweighs your time with your TV or outweighs your time on Facebook or outweighs your time with Netflix, you'll be better off. 
You need to let your soul have room to be filled with the things of God. And when you're filled with the things of God and the seeds that God plants, his fruit comes out. Now I say this to you as much as I have to say it to myself. But when I received God as father and he received me as son, I got a bunch of brothers and sisters in the deal. Not all of them that I would have picked out of the window. (laughs) But they're all part of my family and I'm part of yours. And we need to realize that that bond is just as big as our bond to Jesus. And it's real and it deserves to be fought for. It deserves to be guarded. It deserves to be treasured. It should be something that we put emphasis on and wait on. Purify your soul for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the core of your being because it's easy to love one another from the fringes of who you are. But Jesus said, don't be like those hypocrites. Don't be like those rich folks who give out of their surplus. For that widow with the little mite, she may have seemed like she gave less, but she gave all she had to live. When we give one another, we love from the core of who we are. We're loving from that spring of life. That spring of life does not flow from us. It flows from heaven. So you say, God, pour out of my heart a sincere love of the brethren. If you need to say, Lord, fill me up with your spirit again. I feel low then do it because the evidence of the spirit in your life is not just that somehow you're a little bit more charismatic. It's not that somehow you can, you're, you're just a bit bolder preaching. I believe that you'll be bolder preaching. I believe you'll be bolder in your witness. But say, Lord, fill me again. Fill my heart with your spirit. Fill my life with your spirit because one of the greatest evidences of the filling of the Holy Spirit is suddenly you begin to see yourself as no different from those around you. Suddenly you begin to see yourself as one in Christ. The spirit of God is a universe spirit. Believe it and embrace it. Let's stand together and we're going to pray together.